Chapter Twenty Three of Grace Harlowe's Golden Summer by Jessie Graham Flower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: The Strange Story. Jean's fervent declaration that he prayed never to be obliged to use his rifle against a human being may have acted as a potent charm against evil. At any rate, the welcome light of a grey October morning saw the little company still undisturbed by an unpleasant intruder. It had been a strenuous night for the three men, yet daylight found them signally cheerful and alert. The long weary vigil that David and Jean had kept, the greater part of it standing on their feet, was a watch of pure affection. Their object of their solicitude had been hardly more comfortable. The cold, rain-beaten rock on which Jean had spread his own and David's blankets was a poor couch at best. But to Tom it represented the freedom he had despaired of ever again attaining, and he was more than satisfied with his makeshift bed. Worn out by his recent exertion, he had fallen asleep directly after they had eaten supper. He awakened at daybreak, declaring that he felt refreshed and much stronger. As soon as the first indications of dawn appeared in the still cloudy sky, Jean was about and stirring. As they devoured the few sandwiches they had left, he gravely urged the necessity of starting at once for the spot where he catched their supplies. Among these supplies was a coil of thin, tough rope which Jean proposed should serve in the construction of a litter on which to carry Tom. Once that important detail had been attended to, they would be able to proceed much faster toward Mr. Mackenzie's camp. Again, old Jean had insisted that Tom must postpone the telling of his story until they were well on the way to the camp. "'You talk now, you get tired, Monsieur Tom,' he said with a solemn wagging of his grey head. "'We know wild man have shut you up and keep you hid for long time. It is enough to know we are satisfied.' Privately, Jean was alive with curiosity regarding the mysterious wild man, yet his duty to Tom came first, and he did not intend to slight it in any particular. The hike to the cash supply was painful for Tom Gray, yet he limped along uncomplainingly, part of the time supported by Jean's ready arm, then again helped over the rough spots by David. Though they had set forth with the dawn, it was after midday when they reached their goal. Almost immediately after they arrived, Jean scoured the vicinity for enough dry wood to build a fire. Once a blaze was well started, David prepared the simple meal, while the intrepid old man turned his attention to the construction of the litter. Armed with a hatchet, he hacked sufficient bows from the trees with which to make it, and went at his task with a will. He left his task only long enough to snatch a hasty bite, then returned to it his wiry fingers fairly flying as he worked. When completed, the litter would be a rude affair at best, made somewhat more comfortable by the folded blankets which covered it. Tom, meanwhile, was rejoicing openly over his coffee and crisp fried bacon. It's the first square meal I've had for over a week, he declared. If you only knew, but I'll have to wait to tell you, won't I, Jean? He called the last to Jean, who was putting the finishing touches to the litter. It is for Mizu Tom's own good that I make the request, replied Jean. But for this, that you mind what old Jean tell you, I will give you the reward. 
his shrewd black eyes very tender, Jean fumbled in an inner pocket of his rough coat. Drawing forth Grace's letter, he rose and tendered it to the astonished young man. Now him is done. Jean referred not to Tom, but to the finished means for Tom's transportation. I go put way the things till we come after some day. With this pointed assertion, Jean promptly made good his word. David followed him with alacrity, leaving Tom alone with his unexpected treasure. Despite Jean's frequent admonitions that they must hurry, it was fully fifteen minutes before either he or David returned to the wan but happy-faced figure by the fire. Manlike, not one of the three made any allusion to the letter which was now tucked away in one of Tom's coat pockets. Jean and David had seen the light of a great joy flame up in their comrade's grey eyes, and in the old hunter's vernacular they were satisfied. Having again cached their few effects with the exception of Jean's trusty rifle, Tom was soon established on the litter, and the hike was again renewed. Difficult as it had been for David and Jean to make their way to the point in the woods which they had just left, the return was a trebly laborious journey. The approach of night found them not yet halfway to the lumber camp. They had calculated that the increased supplies in David's knapsack would furnish them with supper, leaving a comfortable allowance for breakfast the next day. By starting again at daylight the following morning, they hoped to reach the camp before the middle of the next afternoon. As they drew nearer to the camp, they knew they would find the road less difficult. We have not done bad, congratulated Jean, when at twilight they halted to prepare supper. We have meet no one that have the wish to arm us. Mizu Tom, he get better all the time, maybe now because he get better and we so near camp. After supper he tell us about wild man. Then we turn in, go to sleep quick, and tomorrow we are safe. You are right, Jean. I am getting better every minute, thanks to you fellows. Since I have your permission at last to talk about myself, I'll tell you what I've been crazy to say ever since I heard the call of the elf's horn and you found me. Tom gave an involuntary sigh as the events of the past few weeks came to his mind. Supper was somewhat hastily disposed of. Both David and Jean were as anxious to hear Tom Gray's story as the latter was to tell it. Self-denial in this respect had been hard to practice. Yet all three had acquitted themselves with credit. Seated on a log with his friends on either side of him, Tom started his strange narrative with, At the very beginning... I'll say that I am primarily to blame for my own troubles. The afternoon I landed in that little village nearest to the camp, I had made up my mind to get to camp that same day. When I found I couldn't get any kind of conveyance to take me there, I decided to walk. The station-master warned me that a big storm was coming, but I thought I could make the trip before it came. The sky didn't look very threatening to me. He was a better weather prophet than I, for I hadn't gone two miles when the storm broke, and such a storm! It was a terror! At first it was a gale of wind, and maybe it didn't hit the trees, though. The way they came crashing down made me sick at heart. You know how I feel about trees. That I might get hurt didn't bother me half so much as to see the way those magnificent old wonders were being demolished. Though it was summer, it grew pretty dark in the woods, and for the first time I ever remember I lost my way. I didn't know it just then. I thought I was going north when all the time I must have been going west. I didn't want to stop. 
I thought I would be courting just as much chance of getting hit by a falling tree if I stood still as if I kept on going. Besides, I was anxious to reach the camp. I had been following a narrow trail as well as I could under the circumstances, and I supposed I was still on it. It was not until long afterward that I realized that I had made a mistake. Well, I plodded along for hours, thinking I'd soon reach the camp. It was then pitch dark and raining hard. I was beginning to tire, too. I wasn't in the least worried about not finding the camp. I knew, of course, by that time that I was lost. But I knew, too, I'd be all right when morning came. What bothered me was to hunt some place where I could get out of the rain and spend the night. But I couldn't find even an overhanging rock, though I kept my pocket searchlight going constantly. The last time I turned it on my watch, I saw it was ten o'clock. After that, well, here comes the queerest story you have ever heard. I was stumbling along in the dark, when all of a sudden the ground seemed to disappear under my very feet. I felt myself falling. I don't suppose it was more than ten feet, but it seemed a mile. I struck something hard all in a heap. After that I didn't remember anything until I opened my eyes, groaning terribly. It was just getting daylight. I was lying at the bottom of a gorge. Bending over me was the most terrifying person I had ever seen in all my forest wanderings. It was a man, and he was a regular giant. He had a head of long snow-white hair and a long white beard that made him look like Father Time. But his face was young, almost childlike, except his eyes. They were big and black and wild. When he saw my eyes were open, he gave a kind of leap into the air and shouted at the top of his lungs, He is alive again. My son has come back. Before I could say a word, he stooped and grabbed me up in his arms. As my left leg hurt me terribly, I knew it must be broken. I groaned and tried to tell him, but he hung me over his shoulder as though I were a feather and went crashing through the woods. I fainted with pain and didn't come to myself again for quite a while. We were still travelling along, as though the fellow had on several league boots. The pain in my leg became even worse, and I fainted again. When I came to myself the second time, the sun was shining down through the trees. I was lying on the ground, and this crazy fellow, I was sure by that time that he was crazy, was circling around me, muttering and laughing to himself. I tried again to talk to him, but I was suffering too much to do more than mumble. I don't know how long we had been there. I suppose he had only stopped to rest, for before long he hoisted me over his shoulder, and away we went. Quite a while after that we struck that little valley where the hut stands. He carried me into the shack and laid me on the floor. I hadn't the least idea of what he was going to do, when I was too sick to care. I knew he was crazy and that I could expect almost anything to happen. What really happened was the biggest kind of surprise. He undressed me with the greatest gentleness and examined my broken leg, and afterwards set it and fixed it up with the skill of a doctor, in spite of the fact that he had no conveniences to help him. You can imagine how I suffered during the process. I groaned a good deal, and he must have really sympathized with me, for he crooned and lamented over me all the time he was doing it. He kept calling me his dear son, and said over and over, God has given you back to me at last. Then he went out of the hut and came back after a while with a forest of balsam bows. He made me a bow bed in one corner of the room, spread a blanket over it, and laid me on it. 
After that he rummaged around the place and fished out an iron kettle from a heap of stuff in a corner. Then he took it and went out of the shack, and I heard him lock the door after him. He was gone a long time, several hours, I presume. When he returned, he hunted up a battered tin dish and went out again. Pretty soon he came back with part of a cooked rabbit and some broth, and I was glad to get it. Matters ran along in about that way for some days. I tried at first to keep track of them, but I was in so much pain that I soon lost count. It wasn't physical pain alone, either. I went almost crazy myself, wondering what Grace and Aunt Rose would think at not hearing from me. I knew that as soon as they realized that I had disappeared, they would send someone out to find me. I hadn't the least idea of where I was. I still supposed that I wasn't far from the lumber camp and expected any moment to see a search party descend on the hut. I soon found that I couldn't expect any help from my host. He was crazy as a loon, and besides, he had fixed idea that I was a son of his who had evidently been supposed to be dead for several years and had now come to life again in the woods. I tried once to explain to him that I wasn't his son, but it made him so angry that I was afraid to say anything much more about it for fear he'd finish me. He wouldn't talk much. When he did say anything, it was absolutely without sense. But he'd sit on the floor beside my bed by the hour and stare at me out of his wild black eyes. He was good to me, though. He fed me and took care of me in a way that surprised me. Twice he left me for a whole day and a night. When he came back, he brought a lot of provisions with him. He had quite a bit of money and notes in the shack. He kept it in a box under a board in the floor, and almost every day he'd go there to look at it. He never counted it. He'd lift the board, haul out the box, pat the rolls of bills, croon over it, and stuff it back again. One thing kept me thinking we were near to the camp was the provisions he brought in. How he managed to get them without getting himself locked up was a mystery to me. As my leg began to get better, he began to grow less careful of me. Knowing that I couldn't possibly get away, he would set food and water beside my bed, lock me in the cabin. He never failed to do that, and go away for three or four days at a stretch, sometimes longer. Often I used to be faint with hunger before he had come back. On one of those jaunts somebody must have seen him, for he came tearing into the hut late one night, saying, I'm afraid they saw me. I hid in the woods until dark for fear they would follow me. They must not see me nor find out where I live. If they do, they will try to take you away again and then tell me you are dead. They would not believe that you have come to life again. If they ever come, I will kill them. After that, he stayed in or near the shack for days. He was so upset for fear someone would find me that instead of going around as usual without saying much, he would talk all the time. He was cunning enough not to talk loudly, though. He had a glimmer of sense even if he was crazy, for he kept his voice down to a mutter. I dare say my broken leg would have healed a good deal faster if he had gone on giving me as good care as he gave me at first. He wasn't anxious for me to get well. He used to say, when you can walk again, you will have to stay shut up just the same. If you go into the woods, they will see you and take you away. Privately, I made up my mind that as soon as I was well enough, I wouldn't wait for them to take me away. I'd go of my own accord. But I had to be careful. As I've already told you, he was a giant. He was at least six feet three and as strong as a gorilla. I often used to wonder who he was and all about him. One day, about a week before you came, I thought I'd try my damaged leg to see if I could use it. 
He was off on one of his jaunts, or I wouldn't have dared to try it. I found I could hobble about a little, and just for curiosity I lifted up the board in the floor, not because I wanted to count his money, but to see what else he kept in the little old-fashioned box he always took it from. All I found besides the money was a battered photograph of a little boy. On the back of it was written, in a round childish hand, To my father, you little son, Wallace Lindsay, twelve years old. I suppose it must have been... Old Jean interrupted Thomas' recital with a sudden ringing cry of, It is the wild man. He have the name Lindsay. You remember Mizou David. I have tell you about him. In his excitement, Jean leapt from the log, Tom and David viewing him in amazement. But when I have seen his son, he big man like his father. What do you know of him, Jean? Tom's question was freighted with eagerness. It's evident you must know something. Do you mean, Jean, that you think this fellow is the one you were telling me of? demanded David sceptically. It is the same, almost shouted the hunter. I have know the name when I hear it, but never could I remember. But I think he dead long time, because after his son, who he have love much, get killed by tree, he turned to wild man and run way to Canada, and no one know after where he have gone. Of a truth we have done well not to meet him. No wonder you say hurry and get away, Mizzou Tom. Yes, I knew the danger if you didn't, returned Tom. He had been gone three days when you came, and I was expecting him back at almost any minute. Now I understand why he's calling me his dear son. How we managed to dodge him is a miracle. Finding you was a miracle, was David's reverent exclamation. I feel as though I'd been living in a nightmare and just awakened from it. Le bon Dieu never forget the one he love, nodded Jean positively. And he have love Mamselle Grace and Mizou Tom much or we never find the Mizou. Jean made his usual sign of reverence for the supreme being in which his faith was firmly grounded. Now we make ready to spend another night outdoors. Jean will watch while his friends sleep. Tomorrow when we see the camp. Then, Mizou David, it is for you to go to the village and send the message that we have not failed to those who watch and wait. Late the following afternoon, the overseer of the lumber camp received the surprise of his life. The sight of two exhausted, weather-beaten men, who toiled painfully into his front yard, bearing a rude litter on which reclined a third man, sent the amazed Scotchman racing joyfully to meet them. A little later Tom Gray was surrounded by the comforts which had so long been denied him. After a hearty meal and a brief rest, David Nesbitt set off for the village on the overseer's horse to telegraph to Grace Harlow and Mrs. Gray the glorious news that Tom Gray had been found and would soon be restored to them. But David had also another equally important commission to execute, which directly concerned Jean's wild man. After sending the two telegrams, he went at once to the home of the county sheriff, who lived in the village. Completely disgusted with the lax manner in which the sheriff had conducted the search, David reported to him the finding of Tom with a scathing arrangement which the inefficient official accepted in scowling silence. Convinced by David's rebuke that it was high time to redeem himself, he agreed to send out a posse of men the very next day to cover the western stretch of forest in which the demented man had managed to keep himself so cleverly concealed. It may be said here that the sheriff kept his word. For two weeks the hunters of the unfortunate man scoured the forest to find him. 
Due to the wildness of the region, they had great difficulty in locating the place of Tom Gray's imprisonment. Once discovered, they found the hut empty. A guard was posted around it, but the fearsome tenant never returned. It was not until almost a year afterward that those whose lives fate had briefly linked with his read in a newspaper a lengthy account of his capture in a town a long distance from the territory surrounding the lumber camp. The news that he had been placed in an asylum for the insane was a matter of relief to all concerned. On the very afternoon that Tom Gray was carried into the overseer's yard, Grace and J. Elfreda Briggs were making arrangements to leave Oakdale for a brief visit to Emma Dean at Overton College. They had planned to depart from Overton on the nine o'clock train the next morning, little dreaming of the remarkable upheaval that was soon to take place on their plans. Having waited long and patiently for news from the north, Grace was feeling the suspense most keenly. She had expected so much from Jean that with each day's dawn the struggle to maintain a hopeful aspect grew more difficult. It was now over two weeks since Jean had departed from Oakdale, and aside from two brief letters from David, written during the first week of the renewed search for Tom Gray, she had heard nothing further from him. From Jean she had not expected to receive a letter. It had been agreed beforehand that David should do the letter-writing. Despite her efforts of concealment, her deep depression now began to stamp itself so strongly upon her sensitive features that Elfreda Briggs had again pleaded with her to consider paying a brief visit to Emma Dean. Fond as she was of Emma, Grace's heart was not in the proposed trip to Overton. She finally made reluctant consent merely to please the girl who had stood by her so staunchly. It was therefore a most mournful loyal heart who listlessly packed a travelling bag preparatory to the next morning's journey. Long after the house was quiet for the night she lay awake, debating with herself whether or not it were wise to go to Overton. Morning found her still undecided. When at half-past eight she and Elfreda descended the stairs, luggage in hand, she experienced a wild desire to refuse flatly to go. The thought that the taxicab ordered to convey them to the station was probably on its way to the house brought her a remorseful reflection that she had no right to back out at the last moment, thus disappointing Alfreda. "'What's the matter with that taxicab, I wonder?' grumbled the latter. Standing beside Grace on the veranda, she was engaged in peering frowningly down the street. When I make up my mind to go, I want to go. If that driver loiters along the way until he makes us miss our train, he'll hear what I have to say about it. The idea of him being so late. Oh! A sharp cry from Grace, whose grey eyes had been pensively staring up the street, put an abrupt end to Elfreda's remark. Coming down the street toward the house, a bicycle appeared ridden by a youngster in the uniform of a messenger from a world-known telegraph company. Where was he going? Was the telegraphic communication he bore for her? Grace cried out again as she saw him stop before the gate and dismount. Before he was fairly through the gate, a lithe figure had darted down the steps toward them. Halfway up the walk they met. Telegram for you, Miss Harlow announced the boy cheerfully. Sign here, please. Handing her a stub of a pencil, he held the book. With a shaking hand, she managed to trace her name. As he turned and went down the walk, whistling shrilly, Grace stared at the yellow envelope, hardly daring to open it. 
In the same instant she felt Elfreda Briggs's reassuring arm about her. From the veranda the stout girl could see and had acted accordingly. With a quick gasping breath, Grace tore open the envelope, her trembling fingers fumbling at its contents. Then the world seemed suddenly to recede, leaving her alone with the unbelievable information. Tom found, okay, sends love, coming home Tuesday, will wire train, David. End of chapter 23